Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We have had many guests who have had high positions in the government and have written various books, and we see a pattern. FDA scientists warned against genetically modified foods, and yet uh, the FDA pushed that. Uh, people knew that aspartame caused cancer, yet uh, that was pushed through the FDA as well. We now are, have this cancer-forming food and cancer-forming substance in a lot of our food. The FCC passed a law in 1996 that you can't stop cell tower placement for health reasons. Seems to be a pattern here. Well, today we're going to talk to an insider. We're going to talk to E.G. Valianatos, who worked for the Environmental Protection Agency for 25 years. He has a Ph.D. and has uh, written six books, including The Harvest of Devastation and This Land is Their Land. He is passionate about having a healthy, viable system of agriculture and very concerned about the health of our people. So today... I would like to welcome you. Welcome, E.G. Thank you very much, Susan. Okay. Well, you've written a book. It's called Poison Spring, The Secret History of the Pollution in the EPA. So what motivated you to write this book? I worked for the agency for 25 years, and um, during that very lengthy period of time, I met a lot of scientists who had my own concerns, and the concerns I had from the very beginning was that um, uh, despite what the regulation said and what we were supposed to do, there was an underlying message to all of us that we needed to support the petitions, the whatever the industry wanted, we needed to support them. And I found that unethical, so I began to talk to my colleagues, and they also expressed the same kind of uneasiness. And at lunchtime, they would give it, they would give me their emails, their memoranda, their briefings. And within this period of 25 years, I accumulated a small library. Um, uh, in addition to that, I noticed that you know personally, I was not very effective. Neither were many of my colleagues effective in the sense of suggesting a rational scientific approach and be turned down and continue the business as usual, which meant to give permission to the industry to come up with more and more toxic pesticides, which I knew they were getting into our food and our drinking water. For these reasons, after 25 years, I decided the only thing I could do was simply to write a story, tell a story, how the system works, how corruption comes into the government and the government and the industry work as one. And that's the result of that is this uh, book, Poison Spring. 
I focus in this book on agriculture and pesticides in particular because I saw that as the gravest risk to the health of the American people, and not only American people, but the people in Europe and Africa and Asia, because any decision EPA makes becomes almost a global decision so that the other states do not have to repeat what the decision of the EPA implies. And there was what I knew personally and from reading all this internal documents, I knew that there was tremendous amount of corruption, particularly in what we understand as science, observation, data, and therefore recommendations to do or not to do certain things. So my book is suggesting that the chemicals that we have been approving since the 70s are tremendously toxic. They do damage to honeybees, for instance. They do damage to human beings with promoting cancer and all sorts of other diseases. But let, let me just stay a little bit on the honeybee question. In 1974, I discovered by being there, <clears throat> the, my friend scientists, the ecologists, they were telling me that they had already approved a neurotoxin. Now, a neurotoxin is a chemical that actually causes adverse effects on the central nervous system and the brain of whatever animal comes in touch with this chemical. Whether it's a honeybee or a human being, it's about the same thing. So these neurotoxins were confusing the honeybees, and they could not find their ways back to their hives. And the ecologists that were studying this grave situation all over the country, they were coming back to EPA with pictures showing piles of dead bees and uh, documenting the toxic effects of this chemical. And they were making uh, recommendations to at least put a, stop the approval of this chemical, not expand it to other crops. But their senior officials, the people who decided, they ignore those kind of recommendations and they would register that is approved the use of that neurotoxin in more and more crops, which meant more and more honeybees would actually die from this disaster. And eventually, by the early 20, 2010, we had another neurotoxin that replaced this very old organophosphate neurotoxin, the so-called neonicotinoids that came out of Germany. And these chemicals are equally toxic, equally neurotoxic, and equally destructive to the well-being of these honeybees. Now, why should we be concerned about honeybees? It's because this honeybee, this insect, has been part of human civilization for millennia. Aristotle, who wrote 2,500 years ago, wrote about honeybees. <laughs> so the honeybees are important because they pollinate. They pollinate substantial number of vegetables and fruits. So without the honeybees, we would lose considerable amount of food. For this reason, it seems to me we need to do something radical. That is, we need to deregister, that is, to ban or prohibit this kind of toxic chemicals. And I have a chapter about all that in my book. So these are fundamentally the reasons why I wrote this book. I wrote it in order to inform the American people, tell them to wake up. There is not a conspiracy necessarily, but a kind of, a, kind of a, oh, gang, I would say almost gangster-like uh, power play 
between the industry and the government. And they Let's focus the on the honeybees for a little bit. Was that chemical you're talking about, parathion, which like yes, five yes. parts per billion kills invertebrates, one part per billion is fatal to oysters, 17 parts per billion kills the striped bass? And exactly, yeah. In 1985, we had 500 times the amount that was considered safe for infants, and that bees carry this all around, and they carry it back and forth and right into their hives? Hives, and of course, the stuff gets into the honey, honey that we actually eat. And according to the law, that, that honey must be completely pure. That is nothing... Nobody can register anything to get into the honey. And yet the honey, the EPA scientists were discovering from the late 70s, the honey had also been contaminated by that neurotoxin. So that you had mothers feeding that honey to their children. And of course, I love honey. <laughs> A lot of millions of people love honey and we eat honey. So it's not just that we are devastating the honey bees, but we also are hurting ourselves. And... You can argue that because this is a neurotoxin, and the neurotoxin is not just uh, killing honeybees, it gets into our food supply, and, uh, you know, it causes tremendous problems with uh, behavior. It's a brain-changing and central nervous system-changing chemical, so that we hear of all these violent children and violent adults shooting each other and doing all sorts of crazy things, so we need to understand the reasons why some of these things may be taking place. And some of the reasons I suggest that maybe the stuff that enters our food supply may be responsive to some degree at least to this extraordinary violent behavior that we observe all over the, all over the country. Well, really? Do th- I mean, I know that malathion hypersensitive was widespread in Charleston. People were allergic and had immunological symptoms. And in Saku, Japan, the farmers actually got sick with the parathion, the malathion, etc. But are you saying this actually causes violence or we, the studies just aren't there yet? Well, it's, it's a theory. I have no evidence that it will cause violence. But if you get all this uh, stuff that excites you, and they cause adverse effects on the brain, uh, who is to say what kind of expression this kind of reaction will take place? Um, so I suspect that that may be one part of the equation. That the more well, I do know in your book you mentioned that the organophosphates poison the central nervous system, which can cause brain damage in the humans, and you worked in that area for one year. And you also point out that the EPA had a special study on malathion, but um, it seemed that they canceled it. I don't remember now. Cancer what? Cancer the parathion? A study on uh, malathion. Oh, and you yeah, also yeah, yeah. Ma- and this is, you're referring to a case to a study that was for South Carolina, I think. Correct. Um, and uh, they were spraying the area for mosquitoes, and they were people were getting all sorts of symptoms, uh, not necessarily violent symptoms, but symptoms nevertheless. And as a result of that, they... They, they did that. They canceled the, the study. I mean, the, you also mentioned that malathion was related to lung congestion, skin diseases, migraines, headaches, gastroenteritis, uh, GI bleeding, cardiovascular disorders. You know, uh, in various studies, 
and that uh, the U.S. Army noted in 1996 that it disrupted rats' behavior even in very low dosage um, while even affecting the blood-brain barrier, which means the stuff goes into our brains. So clearly it can have adverse effects on our health, or did I miss something here? Well, you're right. It's exactly this. But there's another, another fundamental ethical reason why I am so against the use of these neurotoxins. It's that they are directly related to World War I. During World War I, the Allies and the Germans fought each other a chemical warfare. They used chlorine and other gases, and the and they kill each other by the, by the hundreds of thousands of people. So it, it's a kind of a chemical warfare weapon. So yes, they, they are not using at the doses that can actually kill you on the spot, but the the very idea of using a chemical weapon under another name into our food supply, to me, it's very repulsive, it's very unethical, and it should not be part of any kind of civilized behavior. So that, that's, that's why I think this should be completely banned and never used for any reason, any, any purposes whatsoever. Well, let's, you know, the neonicotinoids, I've heard a lot about it disrupting the honeybees, and this is lethal to birds. It's blocking receptions and receptors in the central nervous system of insects, and the tiniest grain of wheat with this substance can poison birds. I mean, what are we doing? And then, uh, like, 2010, uh, they're, you know, they're finding studies and admitting a bear study was flawed. Uh, I mean, what are we doing? I, I think we are doing the bidding of the chemical industry, and uh, these guys learn their lesson from the t- from the tobacco industry. Uh, the tobacco industry used to have double books: one for the government, one for themselves, and they they saw quite a bit of carelessness and uh, disregard for public health. So the chemical industry learned from them, and they began to do the same thing. The, the sources of corruption are enormous, and they start at the time that you take a chemical and you take it to a laboratory for testing. And this is one lesson that I learned immediately after I got to EPA in May 1979. Within months, I began to see that people were talking to each other very slowly, and they were talking very slowly about something that had already been revealed three years before I got there in 1976. A colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine, Adrian Gross, he used to be an inspector and a pathologist at the Federal Drug Administration. He discovered that the largest laboratory in the country, industrial biotest outside of Chicago, Illinois, they were faking data. (laughs) You pay them half a million dollars and they did the study in two months and then the rest of the year they faked the numbers. So they were doing that for 25 years. So we are talking about the systematic crime and fraud of enormous proportions because that laboratory supposedly tested 40%, 40, 40% of all the chemicals in the country, which also included drugs. And you as a doctor definitely <laughs> know exactly what, what I'm talking about. So after he discovered the fraud, then they began to, do, to say to themselves, that is the senior government officials, including those of EPA, what do we do now after we have all these chemicals approved on the basis of fraud? Well, if I were in their position, I would say ban all those chemicals, but they didn't do that. It was during the Carter administration, 1976 to 1980, 
they decided to go only against this laboratory and leave the chemical industry alone. In fact, some of the chemical companies had their own representatives at the laboratory. Think of the audacity of what I just said. They had their own representatives to, to supervise the fraudulent conducting of laboratory tests. So the EPA and FDA said, well, we have complementary studies, so don't worry about it. And they would ask the companies to repeat their studies. But of course, repeating the study takes two to four years. And meanwhile, the chemical goes into the market and it gets into your food, into your drinking water. So it was that historical event that really turned me, made me very, very upset against the whole system of regulation as, as it's been practiced in the United States. EPA, of course, we can blame EPA or, or as much as we want, but it's a political institution. It's run by the White House. In other words, the Office of the Management and Budget would decide what you do, how much money you spend on whatever. While I was there in the first three years, we had enough, enough money. EPA had plenty of money. So they were hiring professors like you, medical people, to go after an accident to study the effects of that chemical. If there was a spill, let's say, in Mississippi, and the stuff, the, the herbicide got into the river, you would see millions of dead fish. So they would go to the river, take fish samples, and discover that this chemical did this damage. So they were trying to, to do something about this lethal effects. But then the more we come towards this time that we are now, that is from Carter to Reagan to Bush to Clinton to to whatever, the, the guy we have today, Trump, the less <laughs> of those things are taking place because they learn, the industry learn, that the more laboratories you have, the more you're likely to discover. So they convinced EPA to begin to shut down its own laboratories. Think of that. EPA also had a team of scientists. They call them audit, data audit team, something like that. And they were going out and investigating and checking at the laboratories. By the time I left in 2004 from the EPA, there were no more than two people in this team. And, uh, of course, um, Dr. Adrian Gross, that uh, great guy that did the discovery of the laboratory, he died in 1992. So we have a regulatory system only in name. The substance is, is that the chemical industry does control the regulatory system of the United States, and through that, it controls the regulatory system of the rest of the world. This let, me, let me step back a bit. So this lab that, well, just abbreviate IBT, for 25 yes. years falsified data. The, their lab was in a shambles. They discarded sick animals and substituted new animals. We got chemicals such as trichlorocarbanilide approved, which is a back, antibacterial substance, which is all our soaps, detergents, rinse additives, softeners for the 50s and 60s. Um, this continued, uh, so we got lots more toxic substances in our food, uh, one of them being ethylene dibromide. Uh, and even there was a congressional panel wanting to look into this, as this was injected into citrus groves to kill worms, and uh, the, pe- the people wanting to, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, so this ended up being a big mess. So we knew this was a shambles, but yet we proceeded anyway, and any of those uh, chemicals that were approved under questionable circumstances just went right into our food supply. 
Uh, this happens because the Republicans and the Democrats are in agreement. That is, they are in agreement that the boss of the food industry in this country will be agribusiness and, of course, agrochemical part of that agribusiness. Regrettably, this is the case. When the Democrats take over EPA, they use a very gentle language. They encourage you as a bureaucrat. They give you more money for research. But underneath all that, it's the political appointees of the president within the EPA, in this case, the administrator and the assistant administrators, who make a decision. You as a doctor or me and whatever, as a scientist, you can write your memorandum and say, if you use this chemical, you're going to do this much damage to honeybees or to birds or to human beings. They read your memo, perhaps, or they put it aside, and they decide to approve the next chemical that the industry wants. So substantially, we are dealing with a corrupt system beyond saving. I mean, it seems to me, if I were to reform it, I would just ban most chemicals, and I would begin to find alternative ecological methods of controlling insects that may be really damaging pests, if you can call them pests, or weeds. I would not allow these synthetic chemicals to get into our food supply and to our drinking water because we do a damage to us who are alive right now, but then through the mothers, we are corrupting the genetic, the genes of, the, of human beings so that the next generation will be vulnerable more to cancer, to neurological disease, to other to other versions of disease. And if you do that, then you are, in a sense, undermining your own society and your own civilization. So we have an alternative. It's called organic farming. And it does not need, it does not use any synthetic chemicals. It does not use any genetic engineering or sludge or radiation that they are all used in the conventional food supply. So when I teach and students ask me, <laughs> what should we do? I say, look, eat organic food. Start by eating organic food, number one. Number two, spread the idea of organic agriculture and, and organic food to, to your colleagues, to your parents. See that elementary schools, secondary schools, universities all offer organic food to students. And number three, if you have the opportunity, begin you know, volunteer, volunteer for environmental organizations that are trying desperately to do something about the situation I'm describing, and as I detail it in, in my book, Poison Spring. We wow, need to this, rise must up. Been, this must be so uncomfortable <clears throat> for you to work in this situation. I mean, Alexander Hamilton said a government bought and sold is worthless, so how did you cope? How did I cope? I coped um, uh, with a, a great deal of difficulty. <laughs> I, um, I talked to environmentalists all the time. I leaked or I gave them documents. I talked to persons that used to work for congressional, democratic congressional subcommittees with the hope, and they were encouraging by the way, on that, with the hope that they will have hearings so that what I'm telling you would have come out. And they never did, however. They never did. Despite their good wills, they never did. Well, is and, there any response now? I mean, there's certainly similarities between your book and Rachel Car- Carson's A Silent Spring. Are things moving now, do you think? 
Not really, but you know, the Rachel Carson book dealt with the first history of the uh, of the scientific literature of what is happening. My book is quite a bit, quite a bit different than Rachel Carson's book. My book is the inside story of what really happens. Rachel Carson had not the slightest clue about what I'm telling in my book. She spoke in general about the toxicity of this organochlorine, this organophosphate, and so on and so on. I am revealing how this is done. In other words, I'm using government information to tell you what is going on within the government. The first time ever that a book like this has been written. And I'm not saying that to brag about myself, but I'm telling you the truth. I, I was there at the proper time, and my colleagues gave me their own personal memoranda, their personal papers, which I used to extract information to write my book. How did now, this happen? How did we get to a state that our government is controlled by the industry. Uh, what about the people? How do we get here? I, um, I will, uh, well, I'm, uh, I like to philosophize, but um, the question you're asking is very, very broad and very, very important, of course. But my suspicion is that uh, the situation started to change radically after World War II. <clears throat> the government, after the victory in Europe, the, the U.S. government began to change. Uh, the country began, more or less, began to think like an empire. So if you think like an empire, you want the food supply to come from very few people. So the government money from USDA went to the largest farmers, farmers that had thousands upon thousands of acres of land. And they began to diminish the amount of money they gave to small-scale farmers, what in this country we call family farmers. Now, those family farmers are beginning to become extinct in this country right now because of this 60-70 year change of policy that is giving the money to the larger farmers. Now, those larger farmers that have 10,000 acres of land, in order to do whatever they do, they need to use these chemicals because they put them in helicopters and then they spray all this vast territory, and they don't have to worry. They don't have to hire 500 workers to go and cut down the weeds. They simply use a genetically engineered stuff, and they kill everything except the crops that they grow. So it's for their own convenience, and because of government policy, to see itself as an empire that we are in the predicament that we are today. And the, and the tragedy and the, and the, how to put it, the unethical part of all that is that since the Department of Agriculture was created by President Lincoln in 1860s, he created that department as a people's department. And he spoke about the need to use science to help the small-scale farmer. Of course, we have all abandoned all that, but yet the land-grant universities are still in, still in existence. We are funding them, and yet they have become the brain of agribusiness. Think of that for a second. We are funding the very people who are creating the pesticides to poison us. I mean, that, that to me is completely unethical and something that is within the power of the people to change it. If the state of California wants to change it, they don't have to worry about Washington. They can simply demand that U.S. California, University of California, Santa Barbara, I mean, St. Davis and uh, Riverside that are doing agri uh, agriculture to begin to drop out of agribusiness and begin to focus on the problems of the small-scale farmer and the organic farmer, and you will see a change. 
because when I worked in the foreign service in the late 1970s, 1980s, for any economic development product, we always had to have a section on the small farmers, not that they were short, but that's what we referred to them to, and environmental effects. We had to do that on every single project that we did. So has that shifted? It, it did shift it. I mean, I discovered also in, in the writing of my first book, um, Fear in the Countryside, that was mid-70s. I went to Colombia. <laughs> I was at Harvard doing my postdoctoral, and I went to, they sent me to Colombia. You know, they suspected I was going to come up with a study supporting the existing system. But after I noticed what I, what I, in Colombia, the reality that is that American agriculture, I mean, American technical assistance in the form of pesticides, tractors, all the advanced stuff that we use in this country, immediately had a negative effect on small-scale farmers in Colombia. And I came back to Cambridge, and I threw away the manuscript, and I rewrote my book. And I said, this is very bad stuff. And this is the time that everybody was still talking about the so-called green revolution. What revolution? What green? They, they were saying, well, we need to feed the world, everybody. What do you mean, what world? I was asking my book. You're not feeding anybody. You're simply peddling or selling pesticides, tractors, and, uh, and knowledge. You're not feeding anybody. In fact, you, de- you, are, you are declining. You are helping to, de- to, to decline the kind of productivity of the small-scale farmer. You know, if you have two pieces of land, one five acres, one 5,000 acres, the man who runs or the woman who runs the five acres most likely will be as equally productive or more so than the 5,000 acres. Why? Because he or she is putting her whole life into this piece of land. While the man or the company that has the 50,000 acre, they live in New York in a skyscraper that care less, and they hire people to manage it like a factory. So we have changed our agriculture from family farmer to factory agriculture. And what it gets real tragic and very relevant to today's global warming is that all this gigantic agricultural system is actually contributing from 20% to 40% of all the gases that go up and they contribute to global warming. So not only we have the poisoning of honeybees and the, and the, and the harm, the public health harm, but we also have, we are hurting the whole planet by making possible for the, for the temperature to rise. Even worse, when I worked in the Foreign Service in 1979, part of my job was to ensure that we sent DDT to India for a malaria project, yet I didn't realize we banned it in the U.S. in 1973. I hear we also sent it to Mexico so they can send it back on our vegetables. Really? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, the story of DDT, again, is uh, reflective of uh, the trends that were so prevalent then that they have been exacerbated today. DDT was like a golden bullet. It was the equivalent of glyphosate of today. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of active ingredient. <laughs> and they were sold all over the world. And let me, since I mentioned the word active ingredient, let me elaborate a little bit so that the listener can understand what's, what's going on. When you are dealing with a chemical, they are talking about active ingredient, meaning the actual molecule, the chemical molecule that does cause harm. And they take it to the laboratory, they do all this testing, honest or fraudulent testing. But guess what? That 
molecule is never used in agriculture. Or rather, it's used, but they wrap it up with a number of other chemicals, which EPA conveniently calls them inerts. Think of it. <laughs> it's like your water. You drink water. That's inert. doesn't harm anybody. And yet, the chemicals that they mix up this so-called active ingredient are sometimes even more toxic than the, than the active. So it's that cocktail of chemicals that is actually being sprayed and, of course, the toxicity is exacerbated because you have potentiation. One chemical acts with the other, and the, the molecules mix, and they create a, monster, a monstrosity of toxicity. It's that chemical that is actually getting into our food supply. But few people, in fact, I would say practically nobody, actually thinks in those terms when they talk about the toxicity of glyphosate or the toxicity of neonicotinoids or whatever. It's, it's, it's this kind of, it's a kind of a game, it's a kind of a corrupt system that is designed to make you, the consumer or the citizen, confused and never ask questions and, of course, facilitate the process of selling and manufacturing more and more of the same stuff. So let me see, like with DDT, it mixes with other chemicals, it's toxic to many fish, causes cancer in rats, can last in the soil for 10 years, it bioaccumulates in our tissues, and when it was banned in 1972, you said the EPA mishandled the cancellation and it didn't quite go as effectively as one would like? No, 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 it did it in, in the EPA in 1972 banned DDT. And yeah, they banned the DDT I mean. because they, the, one of the metabolites called DDE is a carcinogen. So in addition to being toxic to all sorts of fish and insects and birds, there is also a, a cancer part of DDT. And that cancer part, because of that, in my, in my information, and I have it in the book, it's the, it's the reason, the very reason why EPA decided finally to ban DDT. And the people who decided to do that, they were Republicans. <laughs> you had Richard Nixon as a president, and you have uh, the administrator was also, also a Republican. Uh, so today we have Republicans, of course, and they're an entirely different group of people. I don't think they, have, they read very much or they care very much about public health and the environment. Indeed, the president... Uh, Trump pointed this guy that he's no longer there, uh, Scott Pruitt, who said there's no global warming. What do you care about global warming? And then they, he diluted all the very few regulations that provided some kind of protection for clean water and air. So now the, in this country, I mean, you're getting punched by in every way you go. You breathe air, you drink water, you eat food. And unless you eat organic food, you are in really deep trouble. Well, one thing that I notice is that our federal regulation organizations, there seems to be a revolving door um, in the industry and the head positions. For example, Taylor is the head of the FDA. Tom yeah. Wheeler, who was in charge of the wireless industry, was placed ahead of the FCC. Uh, this seems to be a revolving door. I mean, how do we get there? Yeah, the revolving, the revolving door is something that really has to be banned. If anybody is serious about reforming or changing the system, you start with saying that no one who works as senior manager within the executive branch can actually work for the industry that he or she regulated within 10 years. If you put 10 years, then you become obsolete. 
<laughs> so nobody will actually hire you after 10 years. Well, and I understand what... some people that might have done a good job for the government. As soon as they finished, they, one person who was in charge of a section of vaccines uh, exited nicely to a million-dollar position per year in Merck being in charge of vaccines. I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. This is what the... the Revolving door, and thank you for mentioning it. This is has to be has to go. <clears throat> Otherwise, we are just uh, moving around and we don't ask questions. I mean, I I see the whole system, you know, very as extremely dangerous. And uh, there's a metaphor I like to use sometimes is that's it, nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons we had them for what since 1945, and they have be- become so part of the system of so-called defense. But nobody talks about them. And they keep spending billions to make them even more appropriate to use and so on and so on. It's the same thing with pesticides. We have been working with them for the last 70 years. We have thousands of studies documenting that they are lethal, that they are damaging and so on and so on. And yet we barely scratch the surface. Rachel wrote her book. I wrote my book 52 years after Rachel Carson. Few people read these books. And even the Rachel Carson book that was read by millions, the effect was practically nil. I mean, millions of people read that book. And I wonder, what did they do after they read the book? So it's, it's, it's a public uh, campaign that uh, we need to change people's minds. We need to inform them. And that's why I appreciate uh, this opportunity to talk to you. And I hope that people who are listening to us, number one, they start eating organic food, and number two, begin to ask questions. Um, another interesting thing to me is the role of universities, like the land-grant universities. Yeah. I talked to a gentleman, Mr. Schuler, who was at Cornell, and they had a class on agriculture, so he eagerly attended it. And it was so pro-GMO, and a lot of the faculty was getting paid by uh, various agribusiness, that he tried to start something to question GMOs, and he might have had some conferences elsewhere, but it was so pro-GMO that the students didn't even hear another side of it. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, it's pervasive propaganda. I mean, uh, some universities have sold entire departments to companies uh, for $50 million or whatever. Berkeley has done that, and it's, it's the same, because you would think that anybody who has some knowledge, like you and I and other people, once you've discovered something, then you begin to think and do something about it. You don't just forget it. In other words, we cannot allow these land-grant universities, which we fund ourselves, to continue to do, to, become the, to, to be the brain of agribusiness. They invented pesticides. They invented the, all the job-destroying uh, gigantic machines that do everything in a, in a large uh, piece of land. So they put out of business uh, people, small-scale uh, farmers, by producing so much so, so, so fast. So it's, it's, it's a whole gigantic kind of revolution that has to take place slowly. And by, you start that by educating our children from elementary school up to college level, and especially the medical community, to reject this kind of system and say enough is enough, and we need to get back to organic agriculture that is to sustainable traditional farming that raises food but without the use of these very lethal weapons. 
It's clear to me. There's no, no but or no maybe and so on. It's clear because the evidence is out, is out, is overwhelming. Well, this isn't my even, I mean, my, people might be looking and say, wow, America's a scary place. But at the conference you and I met, there were some people that said the U.S. has more lobbyists in the European Union than they have in the U.S. and that they're approaching every member of parliament in the U.K. to see if they can adopt our wonderful food policies. For example, I was watching a TV show the other night. I think it was called the American Embassy. And it showed American diplomatic personnel trying to convince the British government that the U.S. chlorinated chicken is really a good thing for them to import. I mean, so is Europe at risk to follow some of these practices? Of course. I mean, they know it. I have a physician friend in the UK, um, Rosemary Mason. <laughs> she said to me all her emails or everything, and she's telling me that the food agency in the UK is a subsidiary of Monsanto and of Sigenta. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. She said she lives in Wales, and she cannot have anything. She has a, a small piece of land that used to be visited by honeybees and butterflies and birds. Now, she says everything has declined dramatically because they have to spray every street and every corner, and they are obscene. They are just as deleterious as the people in the, as the practices in the United States. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm, losing, no, I'm not losing hope, but it's, it's bad to see the Europeans becoming a subsidiary of these large corporations like, like this country has become. That's sad. <clears throat> it is very sad, and I mean, one of the things that uh, one of the things that needs to be to happen is the doctors, uh, where you are already committed, and uh, you know what. But the medical community has to be active, and it has to because they have power. The, med- the doctors have power. <laughs> really? Do the doctors have power? Where I, that, I didn't notice that. Where, well, where, I mean, where does that take place? You personally may not have noticed it, but they have money. They make good salaries, tremendous amount of money, and therefore they can go and talk to their politicians, and the politicians will listen. If pediatricians go as a unit and they say no more neurotoxins because they affect the children, well, I'm sure something will happen. I mean, well, we I mean, I wonder about that. The American Dental Association is very heavily invested in putting fluoride, fluoride in our water. The American Medical Association, um, what are their causes? Uh, do you think, I mean, do they address the environment? I don't know. No, I mean, uh, from the few doctors I have met, I don't think so. They, uh, I mean, I know that uh, you, in medical school you don't learn much about diet, you don't learn much about toxicology, so you're not, not you personally, but other doctors are not very skilled in detecting the stuff in people's, um, so they come, people in their office, they can ask some questions at least, hey, do you live in the countryside? And what kind of chemicals are you exposed? No, they don't ask these questions. And, you know, if EPA, for instance, documented since the 70s that that farmers themselves die at twice the rate from cancer than anybody else. Think of it, how many, what rate wow. of, of cancer death must be today if what I'm just saying is, comes from data of the 70s. Wow. Yeah, and, and of course we have importing hundreds of thousands of legal and illegal migrants to pick up all the crops of American agribusiness, 
And it, so we try to evade. We use everything possible to evade the issue rather than, than, rather than address the democratic and scientific principles of agriculture. So we what's happening we, to these migrants who come and work picky strawberries and works on farms? Is their health adversely affected? Of course it's affected, but who is examining them? We know that strawberry is probably one of the most toxic crops to eat if it's not organic. They right. use over it's the top of the dirty dozen, folks. Is a list, the EWG, Environmental Working Group, and they list the top most toxic foods. Yes. Strawberries, yeah, exactly. top of the list. Exactly. So imagine this poor illiterate people coming out of Guatemala picking up all this, all this crop and they go home and they have children probably and... You know, their clothes is contaminated and their shoes and so on. And uh, one of the. Well, did somebody the, go undercover and do a study in this group and actually participate? What did he find? Well, he would find that the, the farm worker is himself becoming toxic to his family once he gets home because he brings dust from the soil, he brings the chemicals that probably were sprayed while he was harvesting the crop. Um, the water he drank probably is contaminated. So if it's a female and she's a kid, the, the, the milk, her own milk might be contaminated, as we know it is. I mean, there's a, an organization in the United States that's called Moms Across America. I met the president, a young woman, uh, Zen Hanikat, and she was telling me that she tested her own breast milk. And she had it tested, that is, and she found glyphosate and all sorts of other nasty stuff in her milk. Think of being a young mother trying to feed your child and suddenly discovering that you have poisons in your, in your milk. What would you well, do? Well, when I worked for the Veterans Association and the vets were coming back with Gulf War Syndrome, uh, they were finding that their wives and their family members were soon catching similar symptoms. So must be some similar chemical involved. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a war environment, you probably have more and more than chemicals. You have all sorts of bullets that are, and other deleterious substances flying all over. So it's uh, it's, it's it's not a pleasant place to be. <laughs> so how does a whistleblower fare in all this? It sounds like you managed to get through it. You're thriving. You're writing a book. Uh, are there problems for whistleblowers? I, you know, I managed to do that. Number one, they, I, I had a friend in Congress, um, George uh, Brown of California, and he loved my first book. And uh, if I got desperate, or I would call the man up or I would see him and he would call the administrator and the administrator would call his deputies and say, hey, leave this guy alone. So that happened a number of times. And then... Uh, EPA in its infinite stupidity or wisdom, they gave me a chance to go and teach for six years in a number of universities. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so for six years I was away. And then uh, I volunteered for a cause to raise money for poor people while I was at EPA. <laughs> and then the other, the other interest that saved my life was my Greek background and my Greek interest. I read Greek and I am a historian and I used to write and publish about Greek, Greek history, uh, commenting on modern Greece and so on. So that Greek interest took my mind away from this perpetual concern about chemicals and so on and so on. So that's really what uh, allowed me to, 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 to get out of there healthy because the people that you work for, when they discover that you are not with them, 
they say you are not a team player. <laughs> that literal that literally means death with your career. Forget about promotion, forget about anything. You don't exist for us. That's about it. So they have a very sophisticated uh, way to to crush you. But they couldn't do that with me because I knew who I was. <laughs> And I laughed at them. I mean, I said, this is ridiculous. I said, and my memoranda to them, they were all very well documented. They never could come back to me and say, hey, you're wrong. Because I took the time. I spoke to experts. And I read a lot. So everything I write is footnoted, just like in the book I published. It's, everything is very well documented, so you cannot argue with me. You argue Have you with had sources. any backlash since this book came out? Any uh, negative response? No, not personally, except people, when I give talks out in Oregon, for instance, some of the people that listen to me, they come privately and they say, hey, you're not concerned about your, your safety? <laughs> yeah. And I said, no, I'm not concerned about my safety. Everything I have to say, it's already in my book. So, you know, I mean, you can't prevent some insane person from killing you, but then that idea will not impede me, will not prevent me from being who I am. And I am somebody who knows who he is, and I have a story, and I will continue to tell it till the moment I die. So it's I like a, it. I like it too. <laughs> so how does industry interfere? How come Congress is captivated by the industry? How does this happen? It's money. These guys, men and women, need to be reelected every two or six years. And uh, there's a huge source of money in the industry. Remember, a glyphosate alone made six billion years last year for, for Monsanto. So Monsanto has plenty of money. They have many, many lobbies in Washington, D.C., and so are the companies. And these lobbies, they, if you're a congresswoman, they take you out to lunch, and they promise you X things, and so on. So they fund you, and you know that you're going to call them up, and they're going to send you a check for $200,000 or $2 million. I don't know. So it's this corrupt access to money that corrupts Congress. But it's even worse than that. I spoke to the family of Arpide Pustai, who in Britain was doing research on genetically modified foods and showing it had very adverse effects on uh, rats if they ate such food. And so right before he's about to um, announce his results, uh, Monsanto calls up Clinton, who calls up Tony Blair and asks him to silence this guy, what they did. They burglarized his home. They took away his data. They fired everybody. I mean, this is scary. I mean, why are they uh, you know, messing around with other countries? Well, they are because uh, the so-called Green Revolution, about which I wrote my first book, the people behind the so-called Green Revolution, they have a simple proposition. They want to control the world's food supply. And if you control the food, it may as well abolish the armed forces. You control the people by the neck. That's scary because I understand the Monsanto seeds, you can plant them, but then you won't get any seeds for the next generation to become perpetually dependent. Anyway, we've got like a couple of minutes left. So would you like to summarize your main points and any take-home messages for our (coughs) consumer? We really need to listen, and I don't know what's going on with our government and what we can do about it, but I remember our current president said he was going to clean out the swamp. 
um, does the swamp, I don't even think the swamp wants to be cleaned out. No, it was never cleaned up, and we need to actually clean this swamp, and by d- doing that, by becoming democratic once again, by abolishing the present version of the Langrang universities if they continue to do the bidding of agribusiness. Number three, I would eat organic food. Number four, I would propagate that idea for all the children, all schools up to university to eat organic food. And finally, the people who understand this message, they ought to try to become themselves politicians and run for office. We need to get honest people in in government. That's the only way to change it, because no matter how much I criticize EPA, EPA will not change unless the people who manage it are the people who think like us. That is, they have respect for human rights. They love the natural world because most of the damage is done, by the way, in the drinking water, in rivers, in trees. We kill in birds. We kill in frogs. We, we force the changes. We promote extinction of species. And an impoverished, biologically impoverished earth is a deathbed for human beings. So for all these reasons, I would say be active and eat organic food. Well, I sure want to thank you for this, and I recommend that our listeners go out and get the book Poison Spring by E.G. Valianatos. This is packed full of facts and documentation. I have no reason to question the veracity of anything he says, nor does it seem anyone else has questioned it. So I ask the listener to go out, do your own research, uh, go look uh, and learn uh, so you can be proactive in your own health, so you can help yourselves, so you can help others, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We have the power to change the world.